The Full Exposure Podcast is brought to you by Dr. Peter Hahn and University of Michigan Health West in appreciation of the creative and artistic visionaries who enrich our lives through cultural connections. Hey, 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 everybody. Happy New Year. If you're just waking up right now, it is 2022. I thought you should know. Um, it's been a minute since we've gotten one of these podcasts out. It's been a long time. Been been about five, six months, maybe longer. Uh, eight months, maybe, since we've uh, released a podcast. That's a shame because I love doing this podcast. Uh, maybe I'll go into it over the subsequent episodes, like kind of like why uh, we took such a long hiatus. Certainly the pandemic was one reason and, and just a few other factors that you might find interesting. But but today I'm really more interested in making sure we tee off 2022 and the Full Exposure Podcast with as much uh, excitement as we can. And we have a fantastic guest, uh, Representative Peter Meyer, our congressman in D.C. for the Michigan 3rd District. And... Um, he was elected uh, on the day we did our interview on January 3rd, which was exactly the one-year anniversary of his assuming office. And that's what his first day on the job was January 3, 2021. And uh, he's, a, he's a freshman congressman. He's made some waves. He's, he's on the TV programs. He's, he's stumping. He's doing uh, a lot of uh, things. He's been quite visible as a freshman congressman. And uh, sometimes controversial, depends on your point of view. Um, and I'm just pleased. Uh, I had an opportunity uh, through our, my friend Rick Truer, who works for Congressman Meyer. Congressman Meyer. Well, yeah, that's a mouthful. Congress, Congressman Meyer. Let's just say Representative Meyer from now on because my mouth isn't working. But, um, and I, I thought, well, do I want to talk to a politician? You know, I really asked myself, is that something I want to uh, get on the show and get knee deep? And then I thought, you know what? Let me ask you guys. Like, if you had one hour to sit down with a a congressman from D.C., what would you ask them? You know, what kind of, how would you shape that conversation? How would you go at it? I'm not one who's knee deep on the ramifications of policy. I don't follow knee-deep in the weeds about, uh, you know, what's going to happen. I'm an interested constituent. I vote. Um, I know enough to vote one way or another. I don't. I trust that the uh, people are doing the hard work underneath the bills to hopefully make an impact for all Americans. But, um, you know, it's a weird time. It's a weird time in politics. It's a weird time in D.C. We talk about that, me, Peter, and I. uh, I'm sorry, Congressman. Uh, Meyer and I discussed that. Um, I'd never met uh, Congressman Meyer before in person. I had um, interacted with some of his family uh, over the years. He is the Meyer of the Meyer uh, retailer, supermarket, superstore centers that are all across the Midwest. Um, his family's net worth is in the billions. He's a young man serving his country. Um, and uh, we talk a, a, a lot about a lot of different things. But uh, in terms of what I wanted to ask him about was, um, you know, you'll hear in the conversation, I'm interested in healthcare. Uh, that's uh, something very personal to me. We talk about the effect of uh, executive orders by presidents and why that might be bad for democracy. 
And we talk about kind of the free-for-all that happened on uh, January 6th, although not specifically, but, um, you know, three days after Peter Meyer took office, uh, January 6th, and a huge insurrection happened at the Capitol. Boy, that'll wake you up. Three days on the job, and uh, people are trying to tear down the building and stop uh, the certification of the uh, Electoral College votes. Um, and uh, basically stop a, a, a free and fair election. So, you know, that'll reel you. He, he goes into it. Um, I'm just grateful to kick this off, this new season. We have several episodes coming up still in January, which I'm excited to release. Um, but, uh, you know, if you missed this podcast, I missed you. I missed hearing some notes and hearing back from you guys and getting comments on the socials back from you or direct messages. And uh, I enjoy that conversation, and I'm looking forward to 2022. Again, along with our partners at uh, University of Michigan Health West, and uh, they, they are proudly uh, continuing to underwrite the podcast at this point. And um, I like, love that they've been so patient with me in terms of trying to figure out what I was going to do with the podcast. And uh, there's been a couple changes. You'll see if you watch any of the video excerpts, if you go to the fullexposurepodcast.com website, um, you'll see that the new episodes are shot in a very different way. Without headphones, we're on my set at the studio. I've got some chairs that we sit in. I think it looks great. Uh, it's a nice conversation. So if you're a visual person, you can look at those video excerpts at fullexposurepodcast.com. You might see them on Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram or any of the other places that you can follow me um, and the podcast. So uh, I don't know. Hey, welcome back, people. It's, I'm glad your ears are on this episode. It's a good one. And uh, Congressman Peter Meyer was very gracious. He, he gave us 90 minutes. We did the normal thing. We sat down, did a quick portrait. And then uh, we talked about whatever we wanted, and uh, I had a short list of things I wanted to make sure we covered. He wanted to talk about a couple of things, and um, and we just went from there. But I found him very engaging and kind and nice and, uh, and concerned, concerned about his position. He knows how important each vote he casts is to the constituents of the 3rd District here in Michigan. And uh, I don't, uh, I'm not jealous of the decisions that uh, he has to make on votes and uh, within the chaos of uh, D.C. and just uh, kind of how things go. So, hey, without uh, further ado, let's dive into this episode. Let's explore the bigger picture with Representative Peter Meyer from the 3rd District. That's my district here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Here we go. Again, we have the luxury of time and sort of like exploring some things. So, Congressman Meyer, thank you so much for popping by the little podcast here. So, uh, Full Exposure Podcast. And um, I just want to preface the, this whole interview is a year ago today, today as we record this, it's January 3rd. This was the day that you took office, uh, one year ago today. And then... Uh, January 6th happened just after that. And I'm just wondering what the, you know, what that sort of whirlwind was like anticipating taking office, the country in literal chaos and the Capitol in chaos just a few days after that, you're a freshman congressman, and how that sort of uh, got you 
acclimated to Washington and D.C. as a guy from from the third district in the West Michigan. Well, you know, I think it's one of those opportunities where you know things are bad. Um, you don't necessarily think that things are good, but then how fragile and how you know deep some of those issues go becomes very readily apparent. And then also in the in the aftermath, just seeing how um, yeah, seeing a lot of kind of true colors and and frankly. A lot of folks who know better, um, just kind of grasping at straws and trying to get through the day, the week, the month, the news cycle, um, and not really with no direction, right? Yeah. Just just trying to scramble, um, and, and I think oftentimes taking what's easiest in the short term, that almost always adds up to what is worse in the long term. But if you're playing a little bit of arbitrage with attention spans and, and media focus, uh, it's not a bad bet to make, sadly. How have you been buoyed in your first year and anchored with the ideals that you were elected to office with in this absolute maelstorm of distrust of the government, distrust in D.C., side to side, and just this gamesmanship that happens all the time? Yeah, I, I think it's been an exercise in kind of peeling back the layers. Um, uh, you know, your point on D.C. being very chaotic, and yet it's both very visceral in terms of if you're watching TV or if you're reading in the newspaper, you know, it'll get your blood pressure up. At the same time, what impacts do you see from the decisions being made in Washington or not being made in Washington? What do you see manifesting themselves in West Michigan? Mm -hmm. and, and it can be a bit of an abstraction, right? Like right. it's... Like there's this this show going on, but it doesn't really have much bearing. Um, and I think that's frankly one of the problems is, I mean, the government can shut down and federal government that is. Uh, if you're a federal employee, maybe you're furloughed. Um, if you want to go to maybe a national park, you can't. Mm -hmm. But the actual impact, you know, there's a fiscal impact. You know, it costs more to shut the government down, start it back up. Um, but the impact on you know an everyday American's life is pretty minimal. Your local city shuts down, and municipal services aren't being delivered. The police maybe aren't patrolling. Maybe the fire department takes longer, if at all. You know, sure. trash doesn't get picked up. Like those are real tangible consequences. Yeah. And I think a lot of the dysfunction is because of that abstraction. You know, if it yeah. happens in D.C., it's really. I think, frankly, the defund the police movement was a great example of this. In, in high-minded rhetoric in, in Washington, it's a great tagline. When that starts to be debated among a city commission or uh, you know, within a municipal context, people say, okay, wait, hold on. Like, how is this actually going to play out? Right? You don't yeah. think of how something's going to play out when you're talking about it at the national level. The yeah. consequences come at home. Well, and I think as an elected official, too, I've often said, like, I, I think... Uh, the most impact is your local, you know, your city commission. You, you, these are the same people you As bump it should into. Be. Uh, yeah. And you bump into them in the, gr the grocery store. Uh, you know, you might see them at the coffee shop downtown. You can see Mayor Bliss, but certainly mm -hmm. uh, any number of our. I'm elected. at downtown coffee shops and grocery stores too, just to yeah, be clear. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> of course. But, uh, you know, but then as people go off to Lansing, there's a little bit of a disconnect. Mm -hmm. 
and those issues are are hyper more hype more impactful on the local level in terms of our, as you described our day to day living, and those decisions really have a direct immediate impact in in more ways than maybe the federal government. And then when you're then removed and go off to D.C., like this layer of accountability, at least for me, is just as a local. Thing, I think it's, it happens in this own playing field, this DC thing, and I think it helps to describe a little bit of how, you know, your your how just politics happen mm -hmm. in general in DC. Like it's just a place where, um, as you mentioned, you're a little bit removed from the the people who can give you heat at home or approval or really give you guidance. So you're going off to kind of this vacuum. Um, to legislate at a federal level and really trying to, you go off, I think, and trying to impact and improve the lives of the third district, but then you can get quickly sucked into these national sort of conversations. Has that been something that's surprised you or did you anticipate the level at like, hey, I'm not home anymore. I'm well, not as in touch or, or how have you handled that sort of year of? Well, believe me, I, I get very constant feedback. Um, no, I, I would say if you look in the, the city of Grand Rapids, right, each city commissioner probably represents 20,000 individuals. Your state representatives, maybe 75,000. State senators, closer to 120, 125,000. And U.S. representatives were representing around 775,000 folks. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's, the, there's certainly that dilution. I, I think, frankly, the bigger problem is this tendency, and it's kind of a, a two-step collapse, you know, instead of an issue arising and saying, number one, is this something the government can solve? And if it is, then what is the lowest level that's going to be able to solve it? Because that will be, it'll be more effective if your city commission takes it up than if Congress takes it up, just because it's a local issue, right? I mean, if you're filling a pothole, sure. you know, you want to call up your county <laughs> road department, you don't want to call up the Department of Transportation at DC. Right. Um, but we collapse a lot of that down, and and even even so, right, you're the better body within each government a layer is going to be the one that's more accountable. Your legislature is going to be more accountable than the governor, right, mm -hmm. um, at the state level. But what we have done is it becomes, here's an issue, what's the president going to do about it? And that not only collapses, A, is the government well-situated to address it? B, you know, what level? And, and C, you know, look for a legislative solution. It becomes, yes, government, federal, executive. Mm -hmm. and, and that, I think, it overstates what, within our constitutional system, a president can do. Uh, it probably overinflates a president's expectations of their own power. Uh, and it also, when that uh, president's effort is invariably stymied because we have a system of checks and balances, we have separation of powers, we have a system that's meant to go slow, when that's stymied, people get frustrated and then think, well, this president couldn't do it, so maybe the next one will. And, and I think that traps us into this cycle of, of frankly, discounting the more effective and responsive layers of government closer to where somebody is, but it also pushes every decision federally. And I mean, we can go off on a number of areas here. There are some things that really only the federal government can do, mm -hmm. right? National defense. Right. States are not well equipped to do that uh, when it comes to managing a currency across all 50 states. You know, the federal government can, has to do that. Um, but any number of other options, instead of saying, well, let's let 
Utah, you know, take a crack at it, and then what works well, maybe uh, Massachusetts will learn from that, and we can compare and contrast outcomes. Instead, it becomes all of the eggs in one basket across 330 million people, and we don't, even though oftentimes we agree in the general sense of what we want, right? We want good schools, we want um, high quality, affordable healthcare, you know, how we get there shouldn't be a political question. It should be a policy question. It should be a demonstrable pathway that can be shown. Instead, it becomes, well, we have this trillion dollar bill over here or nothing, or we have this $2 trillion bill or yeah. nothing, right? Well, we, we're we've seeing live examples of that. With the, with, you know, it's been through all the administrations. You know, mm -hmm. it's, there's, the way these things are packed now is, is you know, there's not floor debate. There isn't really... Uh, debate about policy on the floor. It's align everybody in the party to vote a certain way uh, on everything that's in the bill. There isn't that debate. Like, how has that sort of stymied, um, you know, what's important to you, to the constituency, and just democracy in general, like, in terms of, like, really being able to uh, debate and hash out, and as you said yesterday on Beat the Press, you know, where uh, steel sharpens steel, and you actually come out with a better bill because both sides have debated it, attached policy, tried to improve it. Will we ever see a day again in the near future where there's this hardy debate on floors uh, on these big, big bills that are going through? Yeah, well, and, and much of the debate is just performative, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, we, anything that's in the traditional policy I would say partisan policy realm, um, you can kind of forget about bipartisan approaches, right? Unless it's something very creative. Um, I mean, I can tell you how often Speaker Pelosi's office has reached out to mine on anything. How many? Zero. Zero. Yeah. Um, or, or any substantive effort uh, to gain traction. Now, um, the bipartisan infrastructure bill that was negotiated between, you know, 10 Republican senators, 10 Democratic senators. Um, there was uh, some consultation with the Problem Solvers Caucus that I'm a part of, the bipartisan group, um, but that was very much the exception. Um, you know, we can, I, I really look for opportunities where there is some bipartisan potential, right? So sure. um, I was the Republican co-lead, Republican lead in the House, I, uh, the chair of the House Rules Committee, Jim McGovern, was the Democratic lead on a bipartisan bicameral bill to reform uh, war powers, arms export control, emergency powers called the National Security Reform and Accountability Act that I'm really proud of. Mm -hmm. But that gets into kind of a weird middle ground between the parties where um, you, know, you, have, you, can, you can have a consensus arise that's much more about legislative prerogative and checking executive power than it is you know, a, a political question in a partisan context. You know, I think it was tremendously frustrating. Um, and you really saw this with the American Rescue Plan early on. You know, the COVID relief packages prior to the American Rescue Plan have been extremely bipartisan. They'd gone through kind of a almost an old-fashioned style process. And I remember reaching out um, 
because the Problem Solvers Caucus was trying to do this, reaching out very early on and saying, all right, this, if you want to do a really big build, it's going to take some time to negotiate. That what do we need right now in late January, early February of 2021? You know, we need money for testing. We need money for vaccine distribution. Let's have a standalone bill on that. We can get 90% support. You know, mm -hmm. good, strong, bipartisan. We'll kind of continue that. Uh, and Pelosi told us, pound sand, right? No, yeah, obviously that's good and bipartisan, which is why we want to attach it to the package that you're going to be voting against because we're doing it through budget reconciliation and cutting you out of the process. Right. So there's a pretty staggering degree of cynicism. Um, I mean, even where, you know, it, it's costless, but because it'll be painful for the other side, we emphasize that. Um, and, you know, in the minority in the House, uh, they've slowly done away. This has been a trend over time, but even, even in this session, it was kind of the most extreme iteration. The House rules that um, Speaker Pelosi put out basically negated the minority's ability to be a check on anything. Um, sure. and really kind of a railroad um, of the minority's ability to, to point off for floor amendments, but even, even some of the motions to recommit and some of these procedural moves mm -hmm. where um, they had been a check and, and frankly, when the Republicans were in the majority, uh, that was done away with as well. And so, you know, I, I can have an impact around legislation kind of on those margins. Mm -hmm. um, I can have an impact when it comes to trying to derive and focus attention, you know, on the district and uh, in constituent relations. Uh, certainly our, our district office doing fantastic work on, you know, helping people interact with the federal government. Um, but overall, both, especially in the minority, but even as an individual member, a lot of the power that used to be there um, has been whittled away, consolidated with leadership and specifically consolidated with majority leadership. Yeah. Uh yeah, I think that, uh, I think but at least- I should in, say, I've, I've known nothing but that, right? right so right. we talk about the pre-January 6th you yeah. know, Congress, right. you know, people are like, well, it wasn't always this bad. I'm like, well, I haven't known anything but this, so right. well, I think it what's has regular been, order? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I mean, uh, again, I, I'm interested in politics to the point where I, I, you know, there's, you just can't keep up on everything. The federal government's so massive and, and there's something, there's always some new, emergency of the day, at least, you know, there's always something, as you said, to get your blood pressure up or down or whatever. And, um, you know, really because of the, the, uh, the lack of bipartisan sort of debate and things really gets to an issue that I, I think you would like to talk about a little bit more expand upon that you talked about is um, the use of executive orders, which is really, by, it, it's, it's just sidestepping uh, you know, all public, uh, all uh, debate and political debate and, and consensus building because one president just signed something into order as an executive order. And it's used by all administrations. But I mean, what is the effect, you know, and, and just kind of building upon, um, you know, your, your comments here, I think set this question up nicely. I mean, we've had um, I, I sourced the American Presidency Project, but I was just looking at executive orders by president by quantity, just to sort like, well, is it a lot or not, or what, what, what pace are we at right now? So Clinton had 364 in eight years. Uh, Bush had 291, substantially less in eight years. Obama had 276 in eight years, and Trump had 220 in four years. Good clip there. And Biden is on pace for 83 for a year. 
which would put him at 332 if you know he averages basically 80 a year. And so these are many times many sweeping changes. And now I think what is bad is we have the pendulum of whatever party's in office. So you had Trump signing executive orders, and then Biden immediately just uh, you know resetting executive orders or negating previous mm -hmm. executive orders. And this isn't what democracy is, at least in my view. This isn't how I want government run. I don't want Biden just you know, executive ordering us to death. I don't want Trump doing it. I want people like yourself to go out and fight for what our constituency wants. This is a magic bubble. This is the, 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 the you know, just what we, it should be on paper, but it's not. But I'm wondering what your impact, what you're seeing and feeling in your first year as a result of these, and you've only really been experiencing Biden's executive orders, but how does that frustrate you in terms of as a legislator, in terms of, um, you know, how is this, you know, why are you yeah. in your office if there's nothing we can do about certain things, you know? Well, and again, you know, there are things that I can do and yes, we try sorry. to maximize. I meant that as an that, abstract. But, I no, but it's, that it's, was it's a, incredibly frustrating, view. right? Because yeah. that, that broader sense that, um, you know, I think the, the president will look at it and say, well, Congress will never let me do this, so I'm just going to step around and do that. It's like, well, but that's kind of the point of, of you know, having our, our system of checks and balances. Right. If you can't do it legislatively, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. I mean, mm -hmm. with maybe some exceptions in emergency periods, but even, even that definition of an emergency, you know, the, the CDC issuing a nationwide eviction moratorium. Mm -hmm. I didn't know they were in the rental business, but you get these kind of thin reads where maybe it'll have this impact. Uh, the um, OSHA, you know, issuing you know, vaccine mandates for private employers, right? I mean, things where arguably, you know, Congress could pass a law along those lines. Um, whether they should is a different question, but you know, these actions that really should live within the legislative being moved solely to the executive. And this really dangerous path where, I mean, again, instead of it being in a body that is very accountable, I mean, Congress, every two years, the House of Representatives has new elections. Uh, it's a lot easier to you know, hold a member of Congress to account for a policy than it is for a president who has a jumble of policies every four years. You know, you can get more immediate feedback if it's done in a legislative way. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, we're, we're missing sight of that responsiveness and also losing the degree of accountability. Because if it's just nameless, faceless bureaucrats within an executive agency, mm -hmm. You, no one's really hiring or firing them, right? right. I mean, political appointees maybe, yeah. uh, but that I think creates a sense in a very dangerous sense among the public that you have a government that is just sort of on autopilot that is immune from criticism or, or responsibility no matter you know how frustrated people get, nothing really changes. And, and take the budget, right? 70% mm. of the you know expenditures, the outlays of the federal government we're not actually approving on an annual budgetary process. You know, that, right. you know, we have discretionary, that's the budget that we might be voting on in an omnibus to fund the Department of Defense, you know, executive agencies, the operations of the federal government. That discretionary part that we can have a say over versus the 70% that's going to Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, mm -hmm. things that are just on in interest on the debt, things that are just kind of on autopilot nobody's forced to take ownership of it, right? right? So you don't, 
nobody's looking through and saying, well, could we do this more effectively or more efficiently? Yeah. Or you know, are these funds being put to good use? Or what's mm -hmm. the alternative? None of that happens. What's frustrating is I don't know that we have a, a point where um, we aren't, we agree about 90% of, uh, you know, probably everything that we want for Americans, mm -hmm. right? You know, you mentioned it, healthcare, um, the good education, safety, public safety, all these things. Uh, be able to retire, have a good job, a good economy, all these things. We agree on it, but we, we really kill ourselves over, you know, five or six other types of things that are always the constant bubbling up that seem to be the most divisive on both sides. Both sides play that up. They get elected or unelected or uh, voted out of office. They lose elections based on the tenure of these five or six topics, you know? And um, I don't know what the question is there other than it's like, seems like it boils down to the same sort of conversation we have every two to four years, depending on the election cycle and who we're going to put in office to move the needle on these same five things we fight about for the last 45, 50, 60 years. So I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that. I don't really have a question about it other than it seems like we, it, we just are so catnipped about certain things where we get inflamed about them. The, those are the things we fight about. And there's a tremendous amount of waste and discourse and animosity built up uh, for everyone in this process. But I don't know if you, if, is there's anything you want to add to that? I'll just open the floor to just sort of that idea. But it's sort of attached to these bills and this, but we need defense, we need Medicare and all this other stuff. So, no, I, mean, I, would, I would say, I think we're along the lines of where you're going. I mean, it, we were talking earlier about just the government feeling, especially the federal government feeling like an abstraction. Mm -hmm. And, if you don't really, it can, it's hard to see the impact of good policy or the impact of bad policy, mm. right? Um, it's a long tail. It is, yeah. but, but, and there's very little, everyone's up there on the dais or you know, mm. at the ribbon cutting to claim credit for something, sure. right? But the five years on, 10 years on, hey, what was the outcome of that policy? Did it improve? You know, how, should we be re-examining? I mean, the amount of federal government operations right now that have, that are essentially based off of policy passed in the mid to late 60s or early or first half of the 70s, I mean, is just overwhelming. That's actually a lot of the policies that were um, revisiting in the National Security Reforms and Accountability Act, you know, were passed either in 1970, 1971, or 1973 between arms export control, war powers, et cetera. So none of those bills were meant to be you know, unchanged over a 50-year period. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, one of the, the challenges is that something that addresses the issue of the day or, or the scenario at that passage is never really revisited or looked back unless there's something glaring and jarring. In this case, it took two decades of you know, wars in, in the mm -hmm. Middle East and Central Asia for us to say, hmm, should we have done that better, right? <laughs> right. You know, but it shouldn't take thousands of lives being lost. It sure. shouldn't take that. Yeah. The, to me, if we had a much keener sense of, of, of performance in the outcome sense, mm -hmm. then it would be a lot easier. But even then, finding an objective set of facts or objective analysis becomes very difficult. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of it goes back, in my dream world, you know, we have a much more narrowly tailored commerce clause interpretation. You know, mm -hmm. go back to Wickard v. Fillmore and, you know, whether or not someone can grow wheat on their own property even if they're not selling it. And the Supreme Court saying, well, 
but you would have bought wheat from someone who may have been out of state so the federal government can come down and mandate yeah. that. Wartime era controls like that getting extrapolated to where now everything is conceivably a federal issue and it's not sexy for a politician to go up and say, I can't fix that. Right. I should not be doing that, right? Yeah. That should be solved here. Yeah. Well, this, this is more of a question of your office and the legacy of the office, too, because you talk about federal powers. And, you know, you uh, famously, you know, President Ford mm -hmm. emerged out of the third district and, and uh, was a, a very moderate, the nation's healer, like a lot of these taglines, a very uh, gracious uh, man, I think, on both sides of the aisle, well-respected. Uh, well-respected, you know, in the late 20th century and early 21st, not necessarily in Maybe not at the time. No, I mean, and when I was in this, you know, I was a young kid when all that was going on with, with Nixon and... Watergate and him coming on, and he wasn't reelected largely because he pardoned Nixon and and uh, whatever else. But the, how do you view yourself in terms of the legacy of the third district, and how do you carve out how we might define you in two to four to six eight years from whenever you decide to, um, you know, move on to the next do whatever, thing, yeah. do whatever it is. Yes. No, I, I would say, I mean, I try to be very cognizant of what precedent's being set. Right, because I think the one of the, the, the trends that I think is very negative uh, is I have a lot of colleagues on both sides of the aisle who say, all right, um, all that I know about where I'm going to be on this issue is I don't want to be alone. I don't want to be in the minority. Safety mm -hmm. in numbers go with the herd. Um, that, you know, it, it's understandable in some ways, but, you know, and it's, it's really easy to go into a, a pigeonhole and, and say, well, this is how I'm defining myself. I'm X, Y, and Z, and, and you know, I will just vote accordingly rather than maybe, well, I'll put it this way. The, we had a contempt of Congress vote for Steve Bannon. Mm -hmm. um, I probably spent the better part of you know, a day and a half talking to you know, people who could give insight on the legal precedent, who could give insight on you know, how those powers have been exercised before, reading court cases. Mm -hmm. uh, again, that, that was time that I could have been spent fundraising or sure. doing something that maybe some of my colleagues were, mm -hmm. right? So, there, and there's very little reward because, you know, the, you're never really you're one forced of nine to or nine that voted to, or no, no. one of nine on that. Yeah. But, you know, when it came to Mark Meadows, and, and when it came to Steve Bannon, it was very clear he just, basically said, I don't recognize that Congress has the authority to issue subpoenas or hold someone in contempt. I was like, well, nope, we do. We have to if we're right. going to have a power of inquiry. So um, you know, I, held, I voted to hold him in contempt. When it came to Mark Meadows, it was a very different argument around executive privilege that hadn't been clearly, that was currently being uh, worked through a couple of law suits that were mm -hmm. ongoing. Um, uh, Trump v. Thompson and Meadows v. Pelosi et al. Uh, you know, he had cooperated, you know, but then had ceased cooperation when it got into areas that he mm. was claiming executive privilege and whether or not President Biden can retroactively repeal executive privilege protections, yeah. which is a whole different thing. You know, it's, so I yeah. did not vote to hold him in contempt. Yeah. And, you know, the, but in both cases, you know, I can, I can defend and explain why I did that. You know, right. Versus well, and I think in real time again, the both sides will take uh, whatever your vote is and grind that up and position it for their own audiences and consistency and 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 cast and shade it however they want. I can just by what you're describing can understand why you might have a, a vote one way on Bannon and a d different one on Meadows because there's, uh, as you said, all these precedents. There's also a lot of 
things that are yet to emerge about the process and the inquiries of what's happening, who's getting like it's it's moving every single day and to get clarity on these things in terms of your vote hard vote up or down it, it's hard if you're 49 or 51 you know you have to be zero or 100 but i think that the challenge really you know it, it, if if the narrative is these people are evil punish them or this is a witch hunt everything they do is bad you're just getting into this subjective area where you're never able to actually distinguish things, right? Mm -hmm. Like I grew up watching The Daily Show where you'd have you know, a, a member of Congress basically under one administration arguing against themselves you know, four years later when the president of their party was doing the same thing. They were castigating the president of the sure. other party for doing. Right? Yeah. That, to me, that's the, that imbues a sense of hypocrisy. If, if everything is relative, nothing is objective, there's no you know, affinity to either an ideological principle or, you know, a legal precedent or mm -hmm. something that is concrete that's not just mm -hmm. they're us so it's good or it's not us so it's bad. Well, at the same time as, as you know, you complete your first year, you're also competing for the nation's attention as an elected national federal official and getting, you know, it's important to your office to be in, up in front and your constituents to be a, a national figure and someone who's just not in the shadows fighting these um, battles, but really being relevant and, and being able to be put on important committees and other things like, you know, these are things that, again, don't necessarily always impact day-to-day -day lives of the third district, but it's important to temper your, your personal political ambitions with this game that's being played to, you know, get appointed to certain things, to get, be appointed to certain committees. And, and I'm sure you want to be an effective player. Like, how important is that to you to be integrated enough to uh, forward your own ambitions politically? I mean, well, uh, let yeah. me just ask you about that. You know, I mean, in the context of you're ambitious. So all politicians go off to D.C. to be ambitious and to do a good job and get reelected. But also there's this other sort of internal sort of mini elections that happen within to get on a committee or nominations or, you know, uh, appointments to certain things. And I'm, I'm not disparaging that. I would, too, if I went to D.C. I want to be a power player. I want to, You have ambitions. So how do you balance that with kind of the context of what you said to not be this... Um, uh, you know, have that sort of gotcha hypocritical moment two, four years from now where you're just playing the, the wind, you know, no. the political winds. Well, I mean, I think you also recognize that um, what's true in one moment may not be true down the line, right? True. I mean, just yeah, like anyone enough. can yeah. have an emotion, you know, you, so yeah. I always try to subordinate a little bit of, okay, I maybe feel X, Y, or Z about this. I'm not going to forget about that, but I, I also know that the vote I'm casting today is not going to change in five or 10 or 20 years, my feelings of the moment might. So trying sure. to um, have a strike a balance there, I think the danger that I've seen is where you make a, uh, you, you subordinate what your principles may be mm -hmm. saying, well, I know that this is really important, but there's this thing I care about more, and if I, if I am not in office, if I lose office because of this vote, I won't be able to do that thing I care about more. And those yeah. individual concessions, I think, can um, really 
accumulate into someone just losing any sense of bearing and being purely well, political Again, in the context of being in this other world, into this other culture entirely of DC, and, and again, many steps removed from direct accountability from, you know, um, I'm, I know you have Rick in your local office, but it's, you know, it's not this, uh, we've already painted that picture to where you can really get into this other sort of purely political sort of game. Well, and, and I think the other, the other component is, as to your point earlier, you know, if I can't change something legislatively because I'm in the minority or because of the majority leader's you know, you know, approach to things, the speaker's approach, if I can't change something legislatively, if I can't change it in the oversight capacity, I can still raise attention. Right? Mm -hmm. And that is frankly why, at least I found with the Biden administration, I mean, you basically have to force them to acknowledge something in order for them to address it. Sure. In Afghanistan, I, I make no bones. Like This is not an issue that someone on the street comes up and says, that's my most important issue. Now, for some military veterans, it certainly is. For people who have personal experience there, it is. I mean, I tend to look at the question of Afghanistan saying, well, why were we there is because there was a vacuum of leadership that allowed terrorists to rise and attack the U.S., and I don't want us to fall back into that, right? So there are, mm -hmm. but that's a long-term thing. It's hard to connect those dots, right? It's a multi-step process. Uh, but I talk about it frequently because the Biden administration wants nothing more than to, you know, close the door, turn out the lights, you know, lock lock that away, and focus on domestic priorities. And I try to be a thorn in the side when it comes to not forgetting this issue because I think it will have negative long-term consequences for the U.S. if we just you know, say, to heck with it, you know, we're not, we don't care about that anymore. Is that yeah. still going on? No, it is. And we're facing famine and we have, yeah. you know, folks that we abandoned. Quick and question about that though. Did Congress ever authorize that war in terms of like the war powers sort of act? 2001 authorization of the use of military force passed, you know, roughly a week after 9-11. Are those things sort of typically renewed and come up for review or is it just a 20 well, year Under the National or... Security Reforms and Accountability Acts of 2021, they would be. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think the, the, the post 9-11 authorization for the use of military force or AUMF, um, it, you know, it was Al-Qaeda and Associated Forces that underpinned not only our conflict in Afghanistan, but also the broader war on terror. It's been used to justify activity in close to 20 countries abroad on you know, three continents, four continents, um, just really stretched beyond the original intent of responding yeah. to 9-11. And the, the, the fact that you say it's stretched beyond, you would rather see a little more rigorous debate and congressional sort of approval of these oh, overseas absolutely. actions. Absolutely. Happen. I mean, if, yeah. again, not that I have a high estimation of Congress's capacity, but if you remove responsibility from an entity because you think it's not going to, you know, exert that responsibility in a, you know, prudent fashion, uh, you're never encouraging it or forcing it to improve, right? Mm -hmm. You should hold someone to account when they fail, not make it harder for them to fail by removing things, uh, especially if they were things that were put in there by our founders in the Constitution. So specifically when it comes to war powers, I think the past 20 years in Afghanistan will look, would have looked tremendously different if every two years every member of Congress had to affirmatively say, yes, we stay in, or no, we should leave, 
or, or some modification thereof, the questions they would have asked of the executive branch, of the president, sure. of the Pentagon, of the intelligence community would have been different. The, the answers- And the accountability. The, the pencil sharpening yeah. that those bodies would have had to do to justify themselves, sure. how that gets brought up in conversation with the American people would have been right. different. But I have about 10 minutes left of your time. You've been very gracious, but I really want to selfishly talk about a subject that is healthcare, which has really directly impacted my, my family. I have three daughters. Uh, two, two of my daughters have special needs and, and have um, ongoing uh, healthcare uh, issues that are very expensive. And um, fortunately, I've been able to carve out and be able to purchase insurance through that. But my, my question about healthcare is because um, my positioning about how the healthcare has been handled the last 50 years in this country or whatever a number of years you want to ask or apply to it is certainly in my lifetime, the game is go get a job that provides you with health insurance, right? You need a good job with benefits to make sure you can, um, you know, lessen your exposure to um, financial risk and health risks. Um, so you can provide consistent care, not only to yourself as an individual, but if you have your family, you can extend that on. And and my sort of take, which I'm very interested to hear your, your thoughts or reaction to it, is that for me, healthcare in this country where we, we've almost created this indentured need for somebody in a household to go get a job that provides healthcare benefits, otherwise you're outside the system. You know, this is pre-Obamacare, but like, oh, you know, this, uh, there weren't marketplaces mm -hmm. necessarily available where you could affordably buy insurance. And so for me, what has happened is you have a lot of spouses that um, are working to only for benefits. They might take a job where you, you, that's their only choice. They might choose to not work at that job. They might choose to become an entrepreneur if, if healthcare was sort of taken out of mm -hmm. the equation of their life uh, because there might be some other umbrella thing. And I'm not necessarily condoning like, a, 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 you know, Medicare for everyone in terms of a government operation. I don't have any like great solutions. So I, I'll get to my point because there's a couple more things I really want your action is the cost to society and the business market when corporations um, from blue collar jobs up through the top executive, one of their big expenses is providing healthcare or at least paying a portion of the premiums of their uh, employees that they deem are um, worthy of healthcare, or receiving healthcare through their mm -hmm. employment. The cost is you have more people working outside of households. You might have a spouse, a uh, partner that chooses to stay home, raise a family. We then, because of this cascading things, and you adding health, um, childcare costs, and all these other things. And you also have a lot of people who are just stymied. They might want to be an entrepreneur. They might want to create, take their shot as an artist or as uh, in, inventing something in their garage, but they're off, you know, doing something else. And I'm wondering, is there an approach to healthcare which can remove the burden from employees and also individuals to either make this kind of healthcare life or death choice about do I expose my family to risk to pursue mm -hmm. dreams? Or do I uh, play the game where I just suck up, have some job I don't really love, but it's got health care, it's got benefits, and um, 
I, I don't know. And it's frustrating to me how many people are uncovered and, and still choose to live at risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at many points, I would argue it's, it's not a choice. They might work full time or have an employer. I'm really going off. I'm sorry. But it's my one thing I wanted to ask you is just, you know, like we have employers that won't uh, employ people up to a certain amount of time because they have to give them benefits. Yeah. There's that whole game played. So you have two part-time jobs. You can work 28 or 29 hours or 32 hours someplace, and you still have to get another job to do something, and you're still uninsured, at least through your employer. So how do you see this landscape as I've said it, and just this idea that how we've approached it through this largely employer-based historical um, providing, employers providing this blanket of coverage as an incentive of some kind versus everyone else who falls through the net and the ramifications of all the uh, other things that aren't pursued, you know. I just think companies could divert some of that healthcare money to marketing, to uh, R&D, to other things, you know, mm-hmm. freeze up capital. So I don't know what you yeah. think. I gave I, you a I mouthful. Think, Sorry. Before, before we were talking, yeah. I was saying, it, you know, it's hard to have a conversation on healthcare that's, that's not less than two minutes or more sure. than two hours. My setup between, was yeah. five, so I yeah. apologize. <laughs> but uh, I think just briefly, I mean, we... The insurance market is reaction to cost, right? And having to pool together a variety of individuals because of the potential for one to have a catastrophically high cost and, and so being able to spread that. Uh, it's the essence of insurance. Uh, the, the, you, you mentioned kind of the, the employer-based component. I mean, there was a decision back, and this came about as a result of labor negotiations in World War II when we had wartime wage controls to basically disconnect from wages, uh, medical benefits in particular. And, and those, that disconnect in that decision to not tax medical benefits, you know, there was a Cadillac tax, there's other things that came with the Affordable Care Act, but that really started us down the system of having your health insurance be provided by your employer mm-hmm. and then that being something to negotiate. Now, to your point, I think uh, this was something the Affordable Care Act tried to remedy, but the challenge is if the remedy is via government subsidy, that may have a short-term impact on affordability, but in the longer term or the medium term, frankly, the market adjusts to that. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the reasons why we haven't seen prices go down. Well, why would they go down when the government, who's probably one of the least price-sensitive consumers in the world, when the government is paying for it, there's very little accountability for how those funds are being spent or whether or not it's being done efficiently. And the more there's a gap between who's paying and who's receiving, the easier it is to stretch that abstraction out and not have accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the price increases, and, and frankly, that, that principle, right, where the more you subsidize, the less affordable it becomes in general, um, we've seen the same thing in the housing market. We've seen the same thing in education. We've seen it clearly in healthcare. Um, the when you know, and, and this is my my frustration with some of my colleagues on the left is they think, well, a little bit of poison, you know, didn't solve the problem, so let's just increase the dose, right? That that is not leading us to a point that's ultimately going to make things more affordable to the end consumer. Right. There's going to need to be some degree of governmental moderation for sure, right? because the private sector, the private market would not account for every instance, and we do have an obligation yeah, but, to folks. Right? And we don't even have trace pricing transparency about well, healthcare even, either. Even that so, has been uh, like pulling teeth. I mean, the ho- hospital systems um, under some price transparency legislation from the Trump administration 
just grudgingly started to post them on the website, but the way they initially posted them made it impossible, the scripting they used on the website made it impossible to aggregate that. So you had to go to each individual website. and But all of those fluctuations, right, those are symptoms. That's not the ultimate cause of why things are so high. It's just if you have a set number of patients that you have that are you know, you know you're going to get your Medicare, Medicaid reimbursement. It's a set rate, regardless of where your costs may be. You know, then you have to make up that profit margin somewhere else. So it's, yeah, it's a I balloon, understand the, right? The economics of 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 the that insurance, but it, it's like the least efficient. Like, I mean, someone who's a frequent flyer and has been with my my kids at Helen DeVos Children's Hospital, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, entity, uh, you know, world-class healthcare for, for kids. You know, it's, it's really a system between the private insurers and, and, the, and the, the deliverers of healthcare where we really, it's not a great system. The amount of time my wife has to um, correct billings yeah. and, and inaccuracies that happen. And then this... Um, it's just an inefficient, non-transparent to the consumer if there's anything. I mean, we're keeping this in the private enterprise, right? And we worry that the federal government can't measure it any better and there'd be a lot of, lot more waste and sort of these abstract sort of ideas about, well, government can't do anything right, so I'm not going to trust them with my health care, right? So, but it's a mess now, and it's not a, uh, it is not a, uh, consumer-friendly experience to try to manage your billing, manage your own health care, much less for your loved ones mm-hmm. and people who are at risk. To me, I would be love to have some re- fundamental, re- and, and I don't know exactly what it is. I'm not saying the federal government should run it. I'm not. But I don't know where we can get to a point where we get back to a consumer-based, hyper-focused on the patient and families and delivering costs that are uh, in the United States much higher per, you know, whatever, knee surgery, elbow surgery. I know there's subsidies in other countries, but but still. Think back to, I mean, how did the Affordable Care Act begin? It was a heritage um, foundation proposal that was known as Romney Care when then Mm -hmm. Governor Romney introduced it in Massachusetts. And there's a very big difference between states experimenting on what the best way of providing a service will be and the federal government imposing a one-size-fits-all where you have essentially no room for modification mm-hmm. or, or revision, right? It's just, there it is, good luck with it, rather because you can't really point to, you know, a, there's no counterfactual there, right? right. You're, it's, it's a, it exists or it doesn't exist. You don't have gradations. You don't have the ability to experiment. Mm-hmm. Now, that's made far more challenging because of the way that, um, as it stands right now, we may not have socialized medicine to the extent that uh, some European countries do, um, but the government is still the single payer in an overwhelming number of cases where, again, it's not price sensitive. And so the government coming into the market, um, you know, that creates distortions that then reverberate onto that private sector. Right. And we don't have the ability to say, okay, well, what's Florida doing right and what's Florida doing wrong? What's California doing right and wrong? What's Montana, Michigan? We sure. don't have that ability to compare and contrast approaches because of the degree to which we've homogenized that yeah. system. Well, and they also have like this insurance as a as a middle person. All get they're all getting their cut. That inflates costs. The premiums. I know they're covering everybody, right? So some people and their premiums are a loss to the insurer because they they're 
use more expensive medical services that year. You know, but there's that cut. I mean, there's that cut that's coming out of it. Like, the, there, there's this middleman that's playing in between the provider and and the patients, you and know? what's the middleman's incentive, right? It isn't... Profit. It and isn't to... Mo well, or, you know, it, it is... You, you have a bunch of different profit drivers, and you want some degree of profit incentive. You want competition. You want to encourage you want, innovation, right? Yes. But um, if, if that is not aligned with what's in the best interest of the patient, you know, and you have all these entities maximizing their own self-interest but not being dovetailed, that, that self-interest isn't being subordinated under a general interest of the patient, then you have the perverse outcomes that we have right now. Yeah. And, and yet the, the solution that a lot of my colleagues offer is, well, the system's too complex, let's complexify it even more. And that is not gonna... Well, you know, at least you can, yeah. Uh, <laughs> adding complexity to the cake is always an option, I guess. But um, it's 1.33, so I wanna be respectful of your time. Um, I, I just wanna thank you for your service. Um, I, and um, I'm, I'm rooting for you in office in terms of delivering uh, the most impactful benefits to uh, to our community, you know, I'm not uh, politically uh, too far extreme on either side, but it, it's it's been hard to be a, uh, a, a, a watching the Republican Party the last few years uh, for me personally has been hard. I w was a former Republican. I, I'm not trying to make a stumpy speech here, but I want us to always have people, I think you're a man of integrity and in doing the right thing. You have a tremendous amount of options to you personally uh, with your family name and, and, and your legacy there to not be in public service. You can do anything you want in the world, but you're choosing to serve the third district. And I can have nothing but respect for that and for you personally for that. And uh, the fact that you'd come to the Full Exposure podcast, my studio here is also another um, extension of, of just how um, uh, you know, how interested you are in the community and having uh, conversations like this one today. So oh, I don't know if you have any last no. final uh, thoughts or anything like that that you want to leave with us, but uh, we'll wrap it on that and let you get on to your next appointment. I mean, I, it's the honor of a lifetime to serve my home, to serve West Michigan. Um, you know, I, I try to wake up with a sense of not... Well, I think one of the problems in our politics is somebody thinking, you know, what can I do that's in my best interest every day? Um, and rather thinking, well, what are the, how do I make sure that 20 years, 30 years, 40 years on, I don't look back and, and realize that I was, you know, making a concession that I shouldn't have made, right? So it's, yeah. it is a lot easier to say that in principle than to think it's, deal with it on a again, daily basis. Again, respect to you, because I think in that office, if it were me personally, like uh, the amount of daily ways that you could step on your own convictions, uh, step in it in a way, in a soiled way, and, and uh, the opportunities to get down a path that veers you from uh, your ideals are, are probably limitless in that, in that sort of pressure cooker. So, um, you know, we'll look forward to, I'm assuming, I'm hoping you're running, are you running again in a year? I am. Okay, great. Uh, and so we'll see how that shakes out. And, uh, you know, as an incumbent, it's always a good thing to be an incumbent. So um, anyway, thank you again for thank coming. You. It's great to see you. And I hope to bump into you again soon. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on, bro. You got it. Hey, again, my special thanks to Representative Peter Meyer. What a nice thing for him to pop into the studio here in Grand Rapids for 90 minutes, you know, on a busy day. It was the, the as I mentioned, the one-year anniversary of him assuming office. 
And uh, then I think we're going to release this uh, coincidentally, just by coincidence, on January 6th. I think today is January 6th. And bam, insurrection. Hello, wake up call. Anyway, my thanks to him. And what I find is that for uh, what I love about the podcast and just other aspects of being a photographer and having to meet and forced to meet certain people on the job that I do as a photographer and video director is I meet people I don't necessarily agree with 100% on things. Or it doesn't have to be politics, could just be about anything, you know? And uh, I have an impression of somebody and invariably as as I either photograph with them or talk to them or whatever it might be, uh, a lot of mutual respects emerges. Uh, a lot of insight is gained just by human beings sitting down and talking. Uh, again, doesn't mean we're all uh, we're all on the same page about everything. That's not the point of this podcast. You know, it's not the point of bringing in um, uh, Peter Meyer necessarily. It's just to listen and learn and really for him to articulate what that office is like and how he goes about his business and making decisions because there's a billion hard decisions the federal government has to make uh these representatives these these uh senators that we send off to dc um they go into a vacuum a bubble and um you know it's very hard as he mentioned uh, to stay true to the, your values in that in that maelstrom of DC, I think he's done a good job in his first year. Again, don't always agree with him. I don't want to agree with uh, any politician 100 percent of the time. Not 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 the point. But uh, man, what a great episode! I please go to fullexposurepodcast.com slash Peter Meyer and you can uh, check out the portraits I made. You can look at video excerpts and. Um, Again, my thanks to Metro Health. Sorry, not Metro Health. They went through a whole rebrand. University of Michigan Health West and Dr. Peter Hahn for underwriting this podcast throughout 2022. I'm excited about that. They are fantastic. What a great, talented organization that has gone through so much with COVID. And so thank you. Thank you, University of Michigan Health West. You are making this podcast go And I appreciate it deeply. All right. For you out there, let's go get it. Let's have a great week. All right. Take care. The Full Exposure Podcast is brought to you by Dr. Peter Hahn and University of Michigan Health West in appreciation of the creative and artistic visionaries who enrich our lives through cultural connections. (laughs) 